Cinematologist podcast presents Laura Mulvey. In this episode, we present a talk by legendary film theorist, historian and filmmaker Laura Mulvey, which was delivered as part of Falmouth Film Weekend 1978 Revisited, an event hosted at Falmouth University in association with the Sound Image Cinema Lab in May of 2023. The talk looks back at a very specific time for independent and experimental film and radical politics and poses the question of what has happened in the interim and is there still the potential for a radical cinema? This is an idea that Dario is really excited by and Neil and Dario's conversation around Laura Mulvey's talk focuses on that very question. Is radical filmmaking still a possibility in the age of the digital? Thank you to Laura Mulvey and Rod Stoneman, who are the organisers of the Falmouth Film Weekend, in association with Neil and colleagues from Falmouth University, for being able to share this talk with cinematologist listeners. We think it's a really special talk and are honoured to share it. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me across the table for the second time in short, in a short burst is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. <laughs> hey, Neil. Yes, we are back again. It's weird, isn't it, doing these like one after another? Because you kind of have to realise that listeners are going to be listening at different times, but then, you know, our conversation has just flowed from one subject into another. But that's the pros that we are. We are, yeah, you know. Uh, we like to reveal what's behind the curtain. Yeah, we, we stopped for a... We stopped for a quick coffee, um, but yeah, we're just rolling through. So if you if you are coming to this podcast because of the the, the guest that is featured um, and didn't listen to the last one, um, I'm in London, uh, which is very rare with Dario, um, and yeah, we're we sort of we we taped the the Plan seventy five episode, and now we're here to talk about this very special episode. Yeah, we're up fairly early at my uh, my flat in the Champagne Socialist capital that is Islington, so we're going to take this and um, then go for a bit of breakfast, and then we're going to catch the latest Paul Schrader film, which is called... Master Gardener. Well done. I, it just completely blanked in my mind then. I was looking at it. This is the thing that you can't really do over, exactly, over yeah, Riverside, yeah. so that was good. Um, but I think it's, it's an interesting conversation because we've done the card counter, and we did First Reformed, and uh, you know this is the third in his you know, masculinity trilogy. So maybe the, 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 there'll be some hearts to heart, heart to heart coming about what masculinity is. Not that we've never broached that subject before, but we're going to do a bonus on on Schrader. So this is this episode that's coming up now um, is uh, the main episode, obviously, and uh, is about an event that that Neil and his colleagues at Falmouth put on. And yeah, it just sounds like an amazing event with an amazing speaker that likely you will know very well. Yep, so uh, today's episode features a talk by uh, Laura Mulvey, who w- came down to Falmouth with Rod Stoneman, and they came to Falmouth in 1978 to do a, a weekend of kind of seminars and talks around emerging independent and experimental film. The title of the, the weekend was called Independent Film and Sexual Politics, and it was looking at yeah, sort of representation in independent and experimental film from the 60s through to that kind of really sort of high point for first high point of 
kind of second wave feminist filmmaking and uh and sort of queer filmmaking in the in the 70s and yeah they just they wanted to they wanted to revisit it um so it's been a, an event that's been in the in the making for a while and then this we finally got it together for what was the 45th anniversary of that event and we screened a lot of the films that they um they screened originally including a couple of Kenneth Anger who 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 died recently um but with some other films that were picked by by them and by a student who was on the committee and uh, and a colleague Struan Gray who you know um which uh, kind of augmented what was maybe missed at the time or maybe what has come online in response to that um in terms of you know sort of experimental avant-garde film particularly maybe some british stuff and we just sat around for a weekend and screened a load of experimental work and had seminars and then Laura gave uh Laura and Rod gave these these really interesting talks which kind of tried to reflect on what had happened since and where they were in 1978 but without nostalgia in a kind of critical reflection yeah that's one of the things i was going to ask actually maybe we'll talk about that at the the end and i think it's one of the things that leaves you hanging a little bit by laura's talk but we can we can sort of discuss some of that in terms of all of this stuff sounds amazing i wish i could have been there to see all of the films but it's kind of like then okay so where are we now in, in relation to that so it'd be interesting to talk at the end a little bit about some of the other conversations that maybe came out of out of that, and is there an an av- I mean, there are experimental avant-garde films, but but is there a movement? Is there a, a, a kind of politics of coherence around it that 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 Laura seems to be arguing for that there was mm. knowingly at the time? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we can definitely um, we can definitely touch on that based on you know just the some of the feelings and thoughts that came out of it. But I think that one of the exciting things about the weekend that it was very much a almost a kind of new call to action, you know, a kind of not a, to think, you know, not necessarily to, to make work. And one of the things I wanted to do was to, to kind of incorporate the making of work. So in, in the aftermath of that weekend, I invited Daniel and Clara, the artist filmmakers. Yeah. Shout out to them. Shout out to them who were really great presences at the, at the, the weekend. And then they, they made work in response to the weekend. So they've, they've got a film, that they've made uh, in Falmouth. And then there's some student work as well. So some students, they they hosted a workshop with students over the course of the following week where students made work directly in response to that weekend, you know, and and, and experimental film and where it is and where their own kind of subjectivity is is now in response. So those films are sort of being completed and they'll be sort of released at some point. But I wanted, yeah, I wanted it. And I said that to Rod when we started talking about it, like I'm interested in revisiting but I'm not purely just interested in saying, hey, this is something we did 45 years ago. I want to see where it can go next, you know, and, and, and what the update would look like. And that, and what was great was they're, they're interested in that as well. They're not nostalgic people. You know, they weren't coming back for a, you know, they were coming back because, you know, a lot of the things that are in the, you know, kind of the conversation now around gender, around, um, yeah, kind of, you know, labor, around, you know, sexuality, are still very much in the conversation and they wanted to see how far the conversation had come on you know rather than being like hey we've solved it and look at this you know they're very critical think and it was just kind of exhilarating really to just be in that space for a weekend with with people like that and and students and colleagues you know kind of engaging with these questions uh, and then yeah making work and you know, the the that responded to it yeah and it's nice to have Laura Mulvey on the podcast i mean it's not you know she is still a very prolific speaker and uh presence let's say in british film 
studies mm. and film culture more broadly. Um, you know, and I think that the 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 shifts in um, reaction to feminist filmmaking in the sight and sound pole, for example, mm. are, are, you know, are probably outside of the filmmakers themselves are down to her as much as anybody, I would yeah. say. Um, over the years, that is as well. And I think, you know, we, we all, I'm very interested in having the canonized thinkers about film on the podcast whenever we can, you know, because these are the people I've read when I first did film studies. Um, you know, and we've had Richard Dyer on and, and uh, various other people as well who've contributed to that sense of British British film studies. And it, I, I think what's great about this talk is, you know, we talk a lot about podcasting as curation. And I know that's something that you're interested in um, specifically. And, you know, the idea of, of the sorting out of culture. I mean, we were just talking last night about, God, there's too much stuff. It's just, how do you deal with it? And you have to sort of get out of your FOMO, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, whenever you hear a talk like this, which is an amazing kind of scope, scoping out of the period of the relationship between avant-garde and radical filmmaking its alignment with feminism, but also that that sense of it being uh, a, a political practice, mm. practice. All of those things are just brought together really beautifully um, by Laura he here. And, a and you know, one of the great things is I knew I knew a lot of this stuff historically, um, as I should. But also, it was great to have sort of little uh, flashes of things that I, you know, references that I didn't know. I didn't know that filmmaker. I didn't know that film, or you know, and, and talking about the magazines of the time and stuff like that, which I think correlates to kind of like what we see as what good film podcasting or the kind of film podcasts we're interested in and in listening to and producing can do. So it was just really nice to have that on on tape, as it were. And, and you know, for me, th this could go into week one of any kind of uh, political feminist film course as a, a required listening. So that, that was great. Great. Well, that's really good to hear. And I think, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's... You know, like doing an event kind of almost lost sight of what was actually happening, you know. And I made the decision to record it very, very late. I think I asked her and Rod to record their conversation or to record their talks, like maybe when they arrived. I said, Can I record? You know, because it was, it became clear that, you know, Laura Mulvey was in the building, you know, like, and, and that yeah, sounds, yeah, yeah. and literally someone where there was like loads of academics sort of hanging around, yeah. with, like fans at the at the entrance <laughs> I of the School imagine. of Film and Television. And someone said, this is like if Foucault visited, do you know what I mean? And you're like, it is, like she is a major thinker yeah. in our field. Like she is, you know, like you're saying, I think it's really interesting, like she has inspired, you know, generations now of of film studies people who've read her work, engaged with her work over time. And, and and taken those ideas forward, you know, and I think that it's it's impossible to look at the emergence of kind of recent female centric criticism, you know, through those opportunities that have been afforded and not see that path back, particularly to Laura's work, you know, and I think that's great, you know, because it is it's you know and we're talking about paul schrader it's it's poking the bear it's poking the old man bear of of film studies and saying like there's other things at play here and then you know the idea of whether it's tokenism or whether it's what you know political you hear a talk and you're like well actually no like this she's so she's so aware of 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 so much and how it all fits together that you know it's it's it's, it's kind of extraordinary and it was a real privilege to 
yeah to just to, to be in the room and, and hear her talk about it um, and to be able to put it out on the podcast yeah I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about the tone because that is absolutely as vital as the content in some ways yeah we'll talk about that afterwards but let's let's get on with it I think Yep, um, this is uh, Laura Mulvey at the Falmouth Film Weekend 1978 Revisited. But for now, I'll get off the stage and welcome the first of our talks by Laura Mulvey. Well, I can't quite say it's wonderful to be here again because we're in a different building. But we are back at Falmouth after 45 years, you say it was, Lord, and that's um, extremely exciting. And it's been interesting revisiting uh, some of the issues that we um, brought up uh, in 1978. So uh, the point of my talk is really to go back to that uh, uh, time and reiterate uh, some of the uh, some of the concerns, interests, both uh, practical in terms of independent film and also theoretical in terms of uh, questions of feminism and sexuality. Uh, what was it actually called? It was called independent film. And sexual politics, that's right. So, in a sense, my uh, talk is divided into those two uh, um, headings. Um, I hope that it'll come out like that. Um, so, I want to start uh, with some questions and just uh, thinking about this uh, coming here, thinking about passing time, a few issues that went through my uh, mind in the course of preparation. So first of all, 45 years, distant past, a lot has changed. But looking back, the interest in returning to that moment of 1978 is to look back at a moment in which uh, an independent filmmaking movement was constituted, constituted itself uh, in this country, in the, it instituted itself, constituted itself uh, in this country. And um, what's interesting to see the variety of interests and variety of filmmaking and how the movement came together around what we might call a utopian aspiration uh, and the way in which radical commitments, initiatives, in this context, were affected by film, by the importance of independent film at, at the time, and found expression in and through film. But at the 78 weekend, as Rod just reminded us, the focus was on the influence of feminism, sexuality within political discourse, and as personal practice. And Rod, in his introduction this morning, uh, noted, which I had forgotten or didn't know, that the sexual politics was a reference to Wilhelm Reich and to Dusan Makavayev's um, film of the, of the time. And I just wanted to quote the original pamphlet, which says, 
was looking at diverse modes of representation in avant-garde film, uh, political questions that relate to sexuality and feminism. And then very importantly, it ended how to challenge dominant sexuality and dominant film. So I think that uh, uh, question that was put so precisely back in 78 is the one that can resonate for us now uh, in what ways this challenge is still relevant. But thinking about the relevance, I really felt that I had to begin by mentioning so much that's changed ways in which the way in which we thought about gender and sexuality uh, politics in the 70s might have shifted in the intermediate years. And I've just brought up four particular points very, very briefly, and there might well be others. But I wanted to mention these. <clears throat> First to do with technology, film and media, the explosion of new technologies and different modes of spectatorship has transformed the consumption of moving images. This is a radical change between then and now. In 78, we were still watching moving images in this kind of uh, environment. Women's creativity. Although women are still underrepresented, uh, women contribute infinitely more today to collective culture and politics than 45 years ago. And I think it's really important to realize in those days how few and far between, how difficult it was for women to contribute to uh, mainstream culture, politics, and so on. Sexuality, the political implications of sexual politics have changed. In those days, we were thinking very much uh, in a world of gender difference, male, female, with a very strong presence of gay and lesbian sexuality. But the uh, binary concept of gender has been increasingly questioned over the years and is a new feature uh, in discussions today. Um, finally, of course, race uh, is infinitely more a, a matter of infinitely greater consciousness now than it was in the 1978. Not saying that there was no consciousness of race and its importance, which was really about to emerge very much on the cards in the 80s, uh, particularly through the black workshops, which Rod might be talking about. He, he will, yeah. Um, but I think there's, again, a, kind of, a, a, a shift in consciousness and discourse Around that. And as I said at the beginning, there are lots of other changes that you might want to come up with, but these are the four that occurred to me when I was thinking about uh, this. Fundamental changes, but I also just wanted to summarize um, before uh, going further into my historical chronology, kind of two points about uh, the questions of sexual politics. The first is the eruption of different sexualities into avant-garde film. And I think we see this very much with the anger and the Schneemann films of this morning, involved a right to self-expression and also an insistence that these images of explicit sexuality 
and of non-heterosexual sexuality were subversive and were thus a challenge to the dominant sexuality and its repressions. So this was a right to a voice, a right to self-expression. But what I'll be talking about towards the end of my talk is a rather different approach to the question of sexuality, more the feminist argument that images and representations are in themselves a political issue due to the fact that women's images had been uh, sexualized by patriarchal society over the centuries and needed to be confronted theoretically as well as practically. And this should be explored across media, but at the time, our emphasis was very particularly on film, on independent film, experimental film, and the avant-garde, and how this particular form of media could be, as it were, the crucible for exploration and experiment uh, with these things. So now I'm going to go more uh, into these two focuses on the historical context of the 1970s, um, how new kinds of experimental avant-garde cinema arrived in the UK, and how the indigenous experimental avant-garde movement emerged. And what I want to do in doing this is emphasize something of the practicalities of this, you know, that a movement doesn't emerge out of the blue. It involves certain kinds of initiatives, certain kinds of um, organizations, and I want to try and emphasize that practical uh, side of things, uh, but also um, again, how the politics of representation led to an exploration of theoretical issues important to feminism at the time, etc. Et so, do these ideas still have theoretical relevance in spite of changed circumstances and new discourses of sexuality and gender emerging into new visibility? Um, now, I want to just start with some thoughts uh, quite close to the points that Rod was making this morning about um, the context of post-1968. So what was the atmosphere, say, in the UK in the aftermath of, as it were, the intense eruption of revolutionary fervor and desire for change around 68, which had more or less by the 70s, as it were, the wave had kind of slightly crashed on the shore, if you see what I mean. So um, how was this, how was the desire for change articulated? And I thought, uh, thinking about it, I thought one could start from two points. One is from the point of um, just the concept of liberation and how the concept of liberation was coming to the UK in the 70s from, um, I, I'm not doing this very subtly, I'm trying to do kind of a sketch, an outline, coming to the UK from the US where women's liberation, gay liberation, black liberation were all emerging into the social and the political scene. But secondly, from Europe, 
and from France in particular, there were new intellectual aesthetic developments with a new and more theoretically orientated perspective, which introduced us much more to the question of desire, uh, the more uh, um, unconscious questions that go, as it were, with, uh, with uh, the, desi the desires uh, and how desires can be articulated, again, within a dominant uh, uh, um, patriarchal consciousness. So, in a sense, we have here liberation, overcoming the literal forms of oppression practically and politically with overt struggle, but the new political theory introduced a new perspective um, in which, which saw oppression inscribed into society through language, images, ideology, and this was crucially influenced by the translations from the French that were beginning to kind of filter through in the 1960s and into the 70s. And the names that are probably familiar to you now, like uh, Foucault, Althusser, um, Christeva, uh, even Lacan. Uh, so this was, as it were, um, another form of thought, emphasizing forms of thought. Uh, as well as actual struggle. So these kinds of questions, the second lot of questions, language, images, ideology, are really about meaning itself and how meaning is constructed rather than transparent. And this, again, led on to really important questions about film and film form, important to any gender struggle, and particularly to politics of racism, post-colonialism. So how a politics of representation could be included, and I would say, I'm not sure if I'm right about this, but I would say perhaps rather uh, kind of um, uh, courageously that this was the first time that the politics of representation could be included in the wider framework of political struggle. So this leads on to a politics of doubt about illusion, a focus on the concept of illusion within social structures, within ideology, and also ways of seeing, John Berger, for instance, and the way that the politics of film should also include a politics of meaning and also politics of the language of film itself. Um, okay. Cinema. Looking back at the 1970s from our distance, from 2023, um, there's a kind of direction that independent cinema took in the UK at the time. And when I was thinking about it, I was wondering whether this was almost a kind of well, it had its own internal forces, which I'm going to think uh, talk about uh, uh, specifically in a moment. But it was also a kind of flowering of energy before the arrival of Thatcherism and neoliberalism uh, by 1979 and the beginning of the 80s. Although other things happened in the 80s, but this was a, a very seemed to be a really rather specific uh, uh, moment. Um, 
So I'm going to suggest that we experienced uh, a movement of independent film at the time, but also typically of such move, mo moments in which ideas and artistic practice come together, it manifested itself in a kind of um, um, amalgam, a con um, configuration, that's the word I'm looking for, thank you configuration of different kinds of cultural engagements. And I just want to run through some of these. Um, first of all, got this in the wrong order, the right order is that, first of all, before I go on to the internal developments, I want to mention a few external uh, uh, influences which I think are really worth bearing in mind and once again to think about the practicalities of how these new influences actually emerged in this country and how they happened. So first of all there's influences from Europe, um, the arrival of films by say Chris Marker, um, Jean-Marie Straub, Daniel Cuyer, Jean-Luc Godard and to bring these films into the UK, um, distribution from Polykino, um, Pam and Andy Engel, then led on to the foundation of the other cinema. And throughout this period, the activities of the other cinema around distribution and the production and the acquisition of, of films and their distribution was absolutely crucial. So. Uh, a lot of the key European films, leading on to Chantal Ackerman, etc., etc., um, were distributed through the other cinema. New Latin American cinema uh, was at this time really important, particularly from Brazil, Argentina, Cuba. New and unexpected forms of film, new approaches to narrative, and one. Um, essay, in fact, because always writing was important as well as filmmaking, was Julio Garcia Espanosa for an imperfect cinema, uh, uh, in which he argued against the kind of perfection and gloss of industrial cinema, and as it were, for the imperfection of political cinema, and perhaps particularly for the kind of 16 millimeter film uh, that was spreading at the time and that you could see in the hour of the furnaces, uh, Octavio Gettina and Fernando Solanas, shot entirely on 60mm without synchronised sound, which was put on later, and so on and so on. I just want you to get the idea of these diff the importance of these influences. And there again, there was a special issue of the journal Afterimage uh, on third cinema, and again, these films were distributed by the other cinema. New American cinema, which we saw this morning, again, really important for the uh, opening up of the uh, potential of 16mm artist, filmmaker, artist filmmakers. Um, and uh, key in bringing these films into UK consciousness was P. Adam Sidney, the critic and promoter of this kind of cinema, 6368, uh, in which he left the films that he was touring behind, and as we were talking about at lunch, they became the core, first core, of the collection for the London Filmmakers Co-op. Um, 
also written about in, in After Image. Then, for me, a particularly significant was just the gradual appearance of a new women's cinema. Um, um, the films by Chantal Ackerman, Joyce Wheeland, Yvonne Rayner, who will see uh, Lives of the Performers tomorrow, shown uh, in the early 70s, um, and there was a new development of women's, specifically women's film festivals, women's retrospectives of women's films. So, in a sense, the concept of women's cinema was just beginning to emerge into consciousness. So these kinds of juxtapositions, contradictions, coming to the UK from abroad, kind of initiated inspired debates through the 70s about the politics and the aesthetic of radical cinema. Now, in the context of the UK, I just want to evoke, uh, to reiterate the point that I made a moment ago, that now we look back and we see uh, a collection of filmmakers. We see the films they made. We see the legacy of these films. But it's also really important to remember that there was also, at the time, an avalanche of writing about these films. Uh, new um, small magazines, journals. Uh, Rod, you were reminiscing last night about Cinema Rising. Um, of course, screen was very important. Uh, after image, absolutely crucial. Uh, but just imagine also lots of little magazines that might have only emerged for one or two issues uh, and then disappeared from sight but that there is always this kind of intense activity around criticism, also actually around history and the history of the avant-garde, going back to the Soviet experimental period, to Brecht, uh, to the French historical avant-garde, etc., etc. So um, it was, I wouldn't say it was academic, because there wasn't really a constituted academic film studies at this time. It was just keen amateurs, uh, uh, digging around and um, publishing what they could, where they could. Um, but the British Film Institute's education department that Neil and I were just talking about um, did respond to this new interest, but this was through funding curatorial projects and also funding summer schools, uh, day schools, seminars. So once again, you have to imagine an environment in which there was no real established film academia. So the BFI's occasional events brought lots and lots of people uh, together outside of a really serious consciousness of academic study. I'm not saying it was better then, but it might have been a bit more fun. Um, um, and the BFI supported the Edinburgh International Film Festival, which was incredibly important for screening experimental films both from abroad and and uh, 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 um, and British as well. BFI and the Arts Council benefited from increased budgets during the period and this con uh, there was a kind of expansion of horizon as more money came into the independent sector, it was more possible to make films. So I might talk about this tomorrow when I introduce Riddles of the Sphinx, that it was possible for people 
who had never conceived the idea of making a film, that there was a kind of area in the margins which was opening up, where it was actually more possible uh, to make an intervention than it would have been before. If you were a committed artist or committed political filmmaker, this was more uh, uh, something slightly different. I'll try and talk about this tomorrow. Um, Oh, and I also wanted to say, because I think this is really, really important in terms of the rise of artists' filmmaking, that changes in British art schools uh, affected artists' filmmaking practice. So the art schools expanded in the 70s and gained cultural authority, and for the first time, film was included in their curricula. So before there was academic film studies, there was actually film appearing in art, in art schools. And um, it's Graham here. Graham. So in some ways, uh, when the co-op started, uh, a lot of those people who were t working in art schools kind of came to the co-op, I think. And there was a kind of interaction between the two. Um, I just wanted to end this bit uh, with um, uh, to emphasize the different wings or the different strands that this filmmaking took in. Um, there was an issue of afterimage in autumn 1972, so this was really early on, which was titled for a new cinema, when Peter Sainsbury reflected on screenings of Hollis Frampton's Zorn's Lemma and Godard's Le Gai Savoir. He said, Frampton and Godard might seem an unlikely pair, yet beneath the familiar ideological surface of things, they meet in a concern to establish a cinema which does not seek to portray reflect, interpret, symbolize, or allegorize, but to inquire. The new cinema is an epistemological one. And I think that was a kind of opening up that this period uh, in, uh, enabled. Spirit of inquiry, stretching from political documentaries to artists' films, into the nature of cinema itself and the extraordinary potential of film as a system of representation that had been repressed under, as it were, the dominance of uh, the industrial. Now, in 1974, uh, the different strands came together and founded the Independent Filmmakers Association, the IFA. Uh, and, um, oh, I'd wanted to say that when I mentioned the London Filmmakers Co-op, that Steve Twoskin, whose film Behindered, who we'll see later today, had come over from New York to London and was a founder member of the um, London Filmmakers Co-op, LFMC. Uh, but he was also a founder member of the IFA, so was Malcolm LeGrice from uh, the Co-op. And I was involved, Mark Harlin of... Um, Berwick Street Collective, who made uh, Night Cleaners, was also involved. There was a small group of us in 1974. Um, 
Now, what I think is particular about the UK experience is that there is a kind of self-consciousness about a momentum, an awareness of a coming together of a movement, and that the IFA should bring together avant-garde artist films, say, uh, London filmmakers, co-op films, alongside the more politically motivated filmmakers, the Marxist collectives, the uh, uh, agit films that might be um, um, servicing a community, helping a community, uh, or might actually be making films uh, about uh, socialist initiatives. So uh, uh, this range bringing coming together, I think, is really uh, um, uh, important uh, to, in the characteriz- characterization of this movement. So just to try and summarize uh, what I feel is the key point here, although there was a recognition that independence might mean something different to, say, an artist or political propagandist, there was a common commitment, at least around those centered around the IFA, I think, to radical filmmaking, whatever form that radicalism might take. So there was a questioning of form of film from one wing of artist filmmaker across to the other wing of, say, um, left collectives, agitprop. In all cases, the question of radical form came up as an issue. And inevitably, this involved intellectual, aesthetic, (coughs) political debates, feeding into evolving practice. The concept of the political widened, embracing questions of form alongside content um, and bringing together uh, independent filmmaking theory with independent filmmaking practice and and I I just wanted to say as well sorry, the uh, uh, point here was that uh, the IFA uh, promoted um, independent filmmakers um, um, alternative distribution and exhibition so very often independent filmmakers went around uh, with their films, sometimes even lugging a projector to show them in uh, uh, venues not covered by, um, uh, by ordinary distribution. A kind of third circuit, not industrial, not art. Uh, new mechanisms for film ex- exhibition in which 16mm was crucial. Um, and I think, uh, in the context of being here in Cornwall, um, Rod, do you remember the Southwest Film Tours, uh, which I actually did with Riddles of the Sphinx? I think that must have been in 78-ish, 77, 78, which was funded by the Arts Council with Chris Rodriguez, who you mentioned as well this morning. So there was a real attempt to try and get these films out, uh, which wasn't talking about the banging of seats and as, as uh, the punters kind of voted with their feet. 
uh, was a pretty common experience. Anyway, uh, um, so uh, I've just tried to emphasize the importance of the infrastructure, which is nowadays becomes invisible uh, when we look back into, into that period. Okay, so I, what I want to try and do, and this is a, a, a well, talking about experimental film, this is a, a bit experimental of whether I'll be able to do this uh, in this uh, uh, context. I wanted to really say something about uh, how um, feminism came to address the question of representation as a political issue and how that enterprise involved the introduction of theoretical ideas and theoretical uh, thought, most particularly, perhaps partly reflecting my interests, uh, uh, psychoanalytic theory. And once again, I think this is something when people nowadays say, why Freud? Wasn't Freud just a misogynist? Uh, so I just wanted to say something about that period from that particular perspective. So this is to return to the question of the politics of images, the emphasis on representation, and how it came to play a key role in the sexual politics that were developing at the time. And this, uh, to my mind at any rate, had its roots in the early phases of the women's liberation movement. Um, in the early phases, and if you think that the first uh, big conference that founded the women's liberation movement in the UK, as I said earlier, important influences from the US, was held in 1969. So in the early 70s, when the movement was beginning uh, to grow, uh, certain kind of principles came to the fore that were uh, really different from the way that politics had been thought about hitherto. First was the grounding political content contention that the female body and female sexuality should be understood as a site of oppression and a site of struggle. This was central to the key slogan of the early days of the women's movement. I think it should be still central today, that the personal is political. Um, and its reverberations were far-reaching in terms of sexuality, both as lived as a kind of personal enterprise practice, but also in its theoretical reverberations. So the women's liberation, for instance, from early on, demanded women's rights over reproduction, over their sexuality, and these campaigns led on to others, to campaigns around sexualized images of women. So, for instance, there was a sticker campaign uh, on the London Underground, for instance, where eroticized images of women, commercially circulated, had stickers put up, this ad exploits women. Um, the 1971 Miss World demo, again, was drawing attention to the way that women's sexuality was exploited around uh, capitalist and um, um, commodified uh, uh, roles. Um, so this was the way that quite both quickly and gradually the female body, a site of struggle, 
shifted from a social agenda, primary importance in its challenge to women's everyday oppressions, and articulating the place of sex and sexuality within it, to questions raised by images of women, the issue of representation of women's sexuality and their exploitation as objects of male erotic fantasy and their circulation within patriarchal culture. So, to sum up, a politics of the female body then led to images of the female body as a site of oppression and struggle. Very quickly, the question came up um, as women questioned representation images of women throughout the traditions of art history as well as in commodity culture, what do these images represent? They don't represent us. They don't represent women's own experience of their own uh, sexuality, their own everyday lives. They don't represent women. They seem to represent a rarefied uh, mythologized woman which emerged out of a collective patriarchal fantasy of the female body as an instrument of patriarchy. Now, without going into all the ins and outs of this, I want to make uh, the point now that this shift, in a sense, demanded a new kind of language, a new kind of vocabulary. How could we analyze the ways in which these images and representations worked if they didn't reflect women, what did they reflect? So this, it was into that gap, that problem of uh, analyzing uh, the oppression of, the, of images that women turned to semiotics and psychoanalysis to say this is not to do with women, it's to do with a patriarchal unconscious. And so, uh, looking to um, Freud's arguments about uh, the male unconscious, because Freud always said the female unconscious was beyond him, and not really something that he felt uh, able to analyze, but it took us straight into questions of castration anxiety, the Oedipus complex, uh, and so on, which were then could be drawn on as instruments, as, as vocabulary, as new uh, forms of language that made it possible to analyze uh, uh, these uh, images. And also semiotics uh, came in too. If this uh, um, signified uh, was not what it seemed to be. There was a split between the signifier and the signified. I won't go into the whole semiotic side of it. But uh, again, what it did in both cases, the semiotic and the psychoanalytic, was to, was to make visible the gap between what was the image was of, purported to be of, and what it was actually of. So there was the gap in representation uh, that uh, theory made it possible to engage with. So, um, so to summarize, if these eroticized images did not represent women, where did the figuration of woman come from? What did it refer to? 
How could an image represent a meaning quite separate from its iconic appearance? So it was not difficult to see in the exploitative images uh, and the sexualized images of woman signs of the difficulty that the female body represented for the patriarchal unconscious. And Freud addressed these questions of sexuality, gender, and how the human subject is inducted into social life precisely through an organization of sexuality in which one of the genders is valued differently, male above female, etc., etc. Uh, 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 um, and we turned uh, very much to the cinema to begin to analyze how this psyche, uh, patriarchal psyche, worked, but also to think about how to start again, how to find a tabula rasa, a beginning from zero, in order to reinvent these images. Now, I think it's really... Um, oh, I just want to have one quotation from um, Teresa de Loretis, her book, uh, Alice Doesn't, that was published in 1984, she says, if feminists have been so insistently engaged with practices of cinema as critics, filmmakers, and theorists, it's because the stakes are especially high. The representation of woman as image, as spectacle, as object to be looked at, as vision of beauty, and the concurrent representation of the female body as locus of sexuality, sight of visual pleasure, or lure, or gaze, is so pervasive in our culture, well before and beyond the institution of cinema, that it necessarily constitutes a starting point for any understanding of sexual difference and its ideological effects. Um, moreover, in our civilization of the image, Cinema works most effectively as an imaging machine, which, by pr producing images of women or not of women, also tends to produce woman as image. The stakes for women in cinema, therefore, are very high, and our intervention must is most important at the theoretical level. So here, um, psychoanalysis offered these uh, vocabulary concepts with which to begin to negotiate these complex questions. And I just want to end by making um, um, a couple of points. Um, first of all, I want to make a difference between uh, generations in this. Uh, uh, this is something that Rod and I have talked about. Uh, in a way, the um, Caroline Schneemann's film, Fuses, stands out to me very particularly today, both as a work of just extraordinary proto-feminist courage, but also as representing a different kind of avant-garde um, radicalism 
in the sense that it came out more of the underground movement of sexuality, of finding uh, its expression as an act of subversion against the dom dominant order, whereas the generation with which I was involved, and you could say that Yvonne Rayner was involved, Chantal Ackerman, perhaps to a lesser extent, in that she had some quite explicit, Retrieval uh, um, L is very explicitly sexual film. In our generation, there was more a position of standing against sexualizing the image of woman at all. It was what I think of as an ascetic of a, an aesthetic of ascetics. Uh, and in a sense, this return to zero was a stripping away of the whole kind of massive tradition of uh, woman's association, uh, the image of woman associated with sexualization and male pleasure. So I see Carolee as this extraordinarily um, uh, courageous pioneer, but our generation came out of this rather different kind of um, um, discourse. Now, I don't know whether I should say something about why this generation came to an end uh, or whether that's something Rod's going to talk about. Um, I think that looking back on it, I think the arrival of Margaret Thatcher as our first woman prime minister was a blow. Uh, also, funding changed very quickly. On the other hand, as Rod will no doubt talk about, and he was a key figure in this, uh, Channel 4 came on air in 1982, which actually, as it were, um, gave new possibilities to the independent film movement. But then, on the other hand, for those of us who'd been so deeply involved with 16mm and all the implications of working with celluloid, specificity of the medium, etc., etc., um, the beauty of television, uh, despite the beauty of television, there was a shift in the medium that was quite difficult to uh, negotiate. It was also a professionalization. I think Rod might agree with uh, that. But I think it's also important to see that the 80s and Channel 4 brought lots of really interesting new opportunities and a new generation began to emerge that was less to do with ascetics, the taboos, the uh, return to zeros, but you could say a new underground began to emerge with uh, gay clubs and clubbing, uh, the um, work between radical musicians and radical filmmakers, a kind of German uh, aesthetic started to kind of blossom uh, in the 80s as an alternative radical world. So, uh, to reiterate, through all the changes, alterations and shifts, etc., in cinemas, economic, technical infrastructure... I would suggest that one consideration remains the same. The symptomatic significance, uh, the exploitative exhibition, both in production and consumption, of the sexualized body. And nowadays we could say that that extends uh, to the commodification of the female, young female, young male, black and white. 
bringing uh, still ever increasingly central social life, expanded to and through social media, which means that our continued interest in these kinds of image of debates and uh, works is probably still significant after 45 years. That's all. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully you all enjoyed that as much as as we did um, in the room. And the there was a kind of there was another conversation, another talk that that Rod gave um, that weekend that uh, that is on the, available on the website. Um, I ummed and ahed about putting it in to this episode or doing a two parter, but I think it's a bit unwieldy. Um, so all of the material from that is sort of collected along with Rod's talk, which I think might answer some of the points that you raised, Dario, in terms of the legacies of this stuff. So um, if people want to hear that, and it's a really good talk, it's not that it's not great. It's just in terms of trying to make it a kind of a, a nice cohesive uh, episode uh, that's available on our website as a, as a kind of bonus piece of audio, and the link will be in the show notes. Um, but yeah, Dario. Yeah, just just fascinating to listen to. I was kind of like, <laughs> Neil put the audio in the Dropbox, and this is a weirdly technical thing to say at the beginning, but you've got to kind of download it. And I downloaded it on my phone, and I thought, oh, I'll just have a wander around. And within about five minutes, I was like, no, I've got to stop listening to this. I need to download this with a on my computer so I can write notes as I go. Yeah, <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. that. And, and I think... You know, I don't, I, I don't want to get held up on style or performance, but it's something that, that does interest me yeah. in terms of delivery. Yeah, yeah. You know, have, you know, I've written about it now, having sort of been influenced by doing podcasting about how you know going to conferences and listening to people talk, and it was just lovely to hear that accent. And I, it's just amazing to me as a starting point, as a little aside, how much she sounds like John Berger. Yeah, the accent is very, very similar. She references John Berger, but but more than that. So, so it has this sort of BBC Open University element to it, and I mean that in in all, like I loved it. Like, you know, it's yeah, a yeah. pleasure to sort of have that kind of tone of of address being given to you. Um, and w what what's amazing to me is that there's a sort of robustness and a seriousness given to the the art of filmmaking that even in um, writing that you see today, the more contemporary, that is deemed to be political, it doesn't have that sense of taking itself seriously. There's always an irony or an always a, a flippancy, I think, to political writing that that kind of, maybe it has to be there because earnestness is not something that is, um, you know, a part of the zeitgeist right now, is yeah, it? Yeah. You know, people, people don't seem to like people who are earnest. It's kind of like you take yourself too seriously is yeah, a... Yeah. It is a refrain that people you know, we hear a lot of, um, and it just felt radical <laughs> because it was just kind of like you know, no, I'm, I'm like film matters, yeah. and you just have to keep reminding yourself of that. And and I think that that you know we are so obsessed with the idea that something only matters if it's got a big audience, 
Mm. And like we, even us, and we don't have a big audience, but we have a great audience and we have a big audience, I think, for what we are. But we don't have, you know, we're not a mainstream podcast. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, no, fuck, fuck that. It doesn't matter. What matters is what you're saying and what it means to the fundamentals of the form that you're interested in or yeah. critiquing or what you think that means for what you think that form means for the rest of society ideologically right um so it was just it was just wonderful to sort of listen to that and and i mean again my my overriding thought was and and i haven't i haven't had time to listen to the 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 stoneman audio yet so i will i will do that but i was really left hanging at the end about you know is is the democratization of the digital image of the democratization of artistic freedom of economic autonomy really just a false consciousness and we're all economic neoliberal units and i'd like to think we're not but it just seems to me that the the you know where where does this radicalist cycle where is it outside of you know it being on social media or mm. being on youtube and having to mix within that context you know it, it, it seems to me that you know the, the, these were things that were apart and were looking at the mainstream you know in a, in a in a structural way but also in a you know in a, in, in a sort of politics and symbolic way to say yeah. this the, the, these things need to be problematized Sorry, I know that was a bit rambly at mm. the end, but it, it that's th that was the big question that that, that came yeah, out yeah. of it for me because everything that she sort of outlined was just fascinating to listen to, you know. Yeah, and I think the question is is a, is an important one because I think as the weekend acknowledged, like it, th this period as 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 intensive and as radical as it was hasn't led to, you know, what it may be thought it was going to or promised or, or you know or, or shone a light on you know there has been a, a huge kind of crushing of the radical and the you know the experimental you know by the mainstream in terms of you know subsuming a lot of those ideas a lot of those forms a lot of those approaches as you know as kind of quirky innovative you know weird um facets of, of just you know mainstream kind of screen culture particularly or going completely the other way and being auteur cinema being just radical self-indulgence now you know yeah but then also i think what's interesting is like so goddard was in the original um the original lineup but there was no goddard here this time um because there's been a lot of goddard recently yeah. you know with, with with his death but you know the he was still a radical filmmaker formerly radical you know sort of i think you know that he definitely maintained a legacy in that space of a kind of a very well-known name making work that was you know really confrontational really formally you know kind of challenging that was bait but it was based around form you know it was based around digital forms and you know uh layering collage you know the kind of really kind of you know sort of aggressive um relationship between sound and image you know kind of doing a lot of the stuff that that, that is a legacy of that but and what's interesting about rod's talk was how it then kind of moved that moment on particularly into the 1980s so rod was a kind of a senior figure one of the one of the key figures at channel four so you know basically you know shaped 
80s screen culture in Britain in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, including his work with, um, in terms of, you know, supporting and promoting uh, the Black Audio Film Collective, you know. And it's, it's amazing now to think of, you know, where there is a kind of state-sponsored space for that kind of filmmaking, like Handsworth Songs, which is formally daring and then goes on to mainstream television where, you know, a significant audience would see it, you know. So it's about film, it's about tape, and it's about bringing in avant-garde, independent, experimental work directly into the mainstream. And those those kinds of opportunities are, as we were sort of saying, you know, before, you know, harder and harder to find because of the kind of dispersal of everything. But that's it, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it, it's the lack of collectivity. So it's not to say that there's probably thousands of really... Uh, interesting people creating interesting in work that you could put in the banner, banner of experimental or, or radical, right? But are those people, you know, working independently mm. and putting something out there online? And if it if it is recognised by somebody, suddenly it, it, the pathway is always going to be, oh well, that's that's interesting work. Let's. Let's commercialize it. And that's what the person wants rather than saying, oh, my work reacts to this person's work and it's about these politics and, and you know, and this kind of stuff. And and I think like one of the issue, and, and again, another issue is that a lot of the, a lot of the political identities that, that a lot of this work is, is representing back in the, or re, w, w, was kind of expanding the knowledge of and, and, yeah. and kind of pushing forward the, the politics of is now part, want, a lot of corporations want to co-opt that to, so that they seem to be right on. Yeah, yeah, You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, Rod's talk ends with his kind of like, where are we now? Who are the filmmakers doing work that he thinks is kind of in the spirit of that, you know? And I think what was interesting was that he chose Mark Jenkin and he told, you know, he, looked, he said about Ennis sure. Main and he also said Charlotte Wells is after Son, okay, which is work that is outside of that kind of direct politics because, and it's interesting that I think that is a good point in terms of, that direct politics of pride or, you know, um, trans rights or whatever it is, has been massively co-opted by corporations saying, you know, so the the formal kind of daring work that's cinematic, that's based in materiality, you know, shooting on film um, and shooting on a variety of formats to create, you know, a kind of very tactile materialist kind of experience is being done by those people but but is there a scene is there a movement is there a collective it's you know maybe early to say but but sort of not on that i think you know that the work that daniel and clara do with their moving image artists is 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 that in a small way you know they do bring together yeah that's artists. true people like scott barley as well you know yeah, yeah, yeah. they do they, they make a lot of space for that work um but uh, you know uh, is it ever going to reach that level of you know, hands were songs or riddles of the Sphinx in terms of like a, 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 a wider kind of sort of layer of, of cultural awareness. Um, it's, it's it's really hard to say, but I think what was encouraging was that 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 the work is still being made that that that, that, that kind of deals with deals with form as a political way of um, engaging with with society through cinema. But I I think the other problem though is that the 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 one political identity that is stripped out of of that as being something that is is sort of a, a, a core interest is whether it's from the radical side or whether it's from the mainstream side is class mm. and we were talking about yeah, this last night yeah, when yeah. it comes to music it was because it was really interesting but that it is that that sense that 
you know, nobody wants to deal with, with, with class-based politics because it's almost like we... It seems to me that, that we... We, we want to say that we've gone past that now. We're in a libertarian society yeah. or a meritocracy. We're, we're clearly not. Yeah. And, we, and we don't have the same ease of striating, you know, middle class, working class, upper class. It's not as simple as that anymore. But the economic inequality is as bad as it's ever been. Yeah. And the, uh, uh, alongside that, the entry point of non... Um, or lower class people into the arts is more difficult than it's ever been. And there there doesn't seem to be a, a forceful class politics behind film. You know, whenever anybody says that, people just say Ken Loach. And that's that's the extent of it. And he's, you know, to be honest with you, he's, you know, coming to the end of his career. And, he, you know, you could say that his films, you know... They do make cultural marks, but they're not great films. That you know, <laughs> the last few. I'm sorry to say. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah. kind of interesting where he's just a, a, a. He's got this particular kind of bet noir position, I think, in society now. Yeah, yeah and, and interesting listening to the sort of can coverage about the old oak. It's very much saying that, like, yeah, we get it, you know. But where's the filmmaking? This film looks terrible, you know. Which is why I think Bait hit such a nerve. Yeah, maybe you know yeah. because that's that is a film which is very much about class politics very you know localized but certainly you know something that that does that people feel in a lot of different places um sort of post 2016 particularly um yeah i think it's uh and you're looking at that period of that you know the 1978 and this is what we we're talking about last night you know there is you know 70s and 80s there is a there are these structures in place which allowed working class more working class people than previously into art schools to create work through the dole you know these kind of mechanisms and sort of they were just win they were just kind of cracks yeah yeah we cracks, still, you know, yeah, yeah. Lo loads of people went through those cracks but you know thatcher and then new labor and now the tories just like you know sealing up those cracks and you know the attack on sort of universities humanities and arts like you know is a direct attack on that it's a, it's, it's to keep people out you know it's to keep, sure. pe keep those voices out of those spaces where they're gonna they're gonna create they're gonna create work you know problems and what was interesting about when we started this event was you know rod was saying about the students you know will, will they come we had a really good student turnout because the experimental pathway picks up a lot of students and it picks up the politically engaged you know it picks up people who are interested in the climate crisis in gender in race in class you know they want to make work which is kind of interrogative and you know still it's seen that that's the space where it, it can happen you know they're drawn to that as a way of doing it um and we have a you know a particular demographic at Falmouth which is not necessarily representative of you know all the groups that are excluded uh from this you know this opportunity but you know it's 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 significant that still the relationship between political radical filmmaking and experimental work is is still where 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 there's a kind of a most common symbiosis which i think is interesting. yeah yeah no no for sure for sure um the other the other thing that really struck me about the talk was you know i mean it was like i say that this the sort of schematization was just so fascinating to listen to but i really enjoyed the the sort of links to or the 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 mentioning of the influence of the french post-structuralist film uh critics so yeah. you know foucault chris david derrida um lacan and what i thought was interesting about that is because i was very much into them in my phd 
you know, years. And, you know, I, I did my PhD in a gender studies department. So it was it was at the crux of this sort of post-structuralist, post-modernist um, approach to identities, or pr- pr- approach to experience and even like ontology, you know, and ways of being and what have you. But my question for Laura at that point would have been along the lines of, but isn't it interesting, though, that that now, the legacy of that is now this crisis of concrete truth Mm. on knowledge and everything means, anything can mean anything. You know, if everything's socially constructed, then anything can mean anything. And it's led us down to this sort of, um, I think at, at that point in the 70s and then into the 80s, you had, I think, a, a, a sort of sense of the political trajectory of that, which is we want to show, you know, how uh, hierarchies of power create oppression, mm. which is, a, you know, obviously a very valid political agenda, of course. But then the other side of that were, were was the sort of postmodernist art arts movements, you know what I mean? Different types. The, the way that experimental avant-garde did morph into... Into the mainstream in various kind of um, you know aesthetic means, yeah. but I just wondered, you know, I, I wondered what you, whether you sort of sort of picked up on that that a lot of the things that w- were a legacy of what you know these activists and filmmakers and thinkers were trying to do in the seventies, isn't it? Have actually the byproduct of that has been, you know, a sort of hasn't been the political utopia. It's actually led to things that were probably unforeseeable at the time, you know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think you know, a lot of it is the again the extricating of kind of like theme and ideology from form, you know. Like I think that what we've seen is yeah, you know, a kind of a separation of kind of you know the experimental and the, the kind of the political. So there is a kind of didacticism now about this is you know. Whereas one of the kind of thrilling things about watching all these films was how unstable they are as objects, you know, and how you're being presented with images of, you know, of bodies a lot of the time that are unfamiliar in terms of the cinema space, you know, certainly still not as, but also how the the films themselves, you just can't trust the film. Like, is is there supposed to be sound here? Is there supposed to be subtitles here? Right. Like, is that, is that an edit? You know, like, and and so much of it is built in to to destabilize because it's not about the concrete. It's not about presenting these as absolutes. It's about, you know, they are they are dialogue pieces. They are, you know, adding to a dialogue, having a dialogue, but also making you uncomfortable with, you know, the experience of watching the film as well as what they're what what they're kind of conveying kind of thematically which is that felt radical you know that i did i don't know how to watch some of this stuff like and i'm i'm projecting it so i'm running up and then someone's saying no no it's not you know someone who's seen the film it was like maybe no it's all right it's not broken down it's not broken you know because because there's a conditioning to i'm going to sit here and my experience is going to be delivered in a way and what i'm going to get from it is i'm going to be told x y and z and that feel that felt like that was the, the the shift is now that as, as you kind of go back to thing I was saying before, like that there's a co-opting of all this stuff, you know, so like... But that, ooh, doesn't ooh. that only work if there is a center that is coherent, that, that is dominant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what, I, what I'm saying is now that like the... 
the, we've got to the point where, where dominance and oppression are kind of so blurred. In, in, I mean, and, and I can feel people listening might be like, what are you talking about? It's all, and, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the ability of, say, somebody like Donald Trump or Bo- Boris Johnson to claim that they are the victim yeah. is a sort of legacy of the idea of, well, you know, if everything is open to interpretation, everything's subjective, then... Yeah, that's my that's my truth in, yeah, in scare yeah. quotes. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah. it's interesting how we've come to that point now through the the mechanisms of the digital. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think again, it's because I think there is a lack of engagement with how things are, you know, which which again is a is a basic media literacy question. You know, so I sure, think sure. you know, it, 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 I think it is it's re, it, it's resonant across yeah, not just avant garde work, but certainly like how people read the news you know and how how people are educated and sort of encouraged to be critical which is kind of non-existent you know so the the form of everything kind of is you know is never questioned it's just like yeah oh if you tell me it like this then it makes sense and i can believe that but there's no criticality involved and that pushing of expecting of you know a viewer to be critical which is you know what these films were you know they you know they they they, they're art pieces but they are also they're you know they're kind of provocations engagements you know but they're not they don't have a center you know they have their own kind of subjectivity and together you know when you look at the work of isaac julian next to kenneth anger next to you know von rainer like there becomes a collectivity through curation of all of the different viewpoints and you put them side by side whereas like yeah now those often those identities would be in direct conflict with each other at least in terms of you know a kind of a, a, a main trying to get a mainstream space you have to sort of claim a dominance yeah. you have to claim a center for yourself in a way that i think is different to how it would have been yeah and certainly how it seemed in terms of what law and rod were saying in the sort of late 70s yeah and i wonder i wonder how much the, the context of the 70s is key to sort of understanding that and you can't get away from that 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 you know neoliberal capital capitalism hadn't won yet you know what i mean there was a sort of there was a much stronger sense of the socialist possibility in a lot of the civil rights movement you know and even even you know the the the, the sort of communist versus capitalist dichotomy was much more of a uh, a sort of ideological struggle which had its proponents on either side yeah you know what i mean like yeah. the, the, there was a, a, a you know the, there was a sort of sense that there was a communist party in the uk yeah. you know what i mean yeah. and in the, even in the even in the us you know um and the, that that struggle was actually happening, where the, whereas you know, sort of post eighty nine, it's kind of it's kind of over, and yeah. you know, you, we've all become sort of even even though it's been you know heavily critiqued now since two thousand eight, the sort of Francis Fukuyama liberal democracy has kind of solved everything. Yeah, yeah. And now, what's interesting, I think that, and why this event was timely is that I think that now people are realizing that it hasn't won, and. You know, are we in the? It, it, it's weird because, like, looking at the politics of the last few days, it's like, God, we need radical change, but we seem further away. Everybody knows we need radical change somehow, but we seem further and further away from being able to sort of get it through the, through the the you know the the means that we have. Yeah, and what was you know what was kind of exciting was have people like Rod and Laura who've been at the kind of forefront of that radical fight for decades in a, in an artistic sense. Um, still engaging with critical questions around you know what can we do and and just sharing sharing their experience not as a kind of as a novelty act but as a you know as a provocation and as a kind of you know as a kind of you know 
hopeful moment really of like you know we did this before it didn't you know it didn't go where we thought it was going to go but it did it has it has it has these kind of strange legacies um and there are kind of real legacies in terms of sort of cultural progression that you know we should remember from this event um back in the day and then use this one and then kind of and then and then and then take forward and there certainly was a spirit of that in the room you know like of we're going to take this forward. We're going to take this forward as academics. We're going to take this forward as, as graduates. We're going to take this forward as, as artists. And, you know, and, and, and then hope that, yeah, that, that, that collectivity, which is what it is about, can be garnered outside of the, outside of that room in other spaces. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, yeah, great place to finish, I think. So, uh, yeah, just brilliant, brilliant event. It sounds like, um, and thanks for, to Laura and to Rod, for um allowing us to record and use the use the audio yeah massive massive thanks to them uh for everything had a really had a really nice time you know it's interesting what you're saying about the seriousness of it you know they take this the thinking and the work seriously but we had a good time <laughs> awesome so yeah that will do it for this episode of the cinematologists uh come and join us on the bonus where we're going to talk about Master Gardener and Paul Schrader and maybe a few other bonusy type things um, as Neil is here in, in London. And uh, yeah, thanks very much uh, to you, Neil, for putting these last two episodes together. Been great. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks to everyone who's been involved. And yeah, thanks for yeah thanks for inviting me up for, for the weekend um, to hang out and do stuff and record some, record some tape. My pleasure, my pleasure. So yeah, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>